great to see the churches being the church, talking to everybody and enjoying each other's company and fellowship. And uh, as soon as service is over, you guys can get right back at this. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, we are going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 13. We're just going to look at the first 10 verses this morning. We'll save the rest of the chapter for next week. We have a communion this morning. And so with the time frame, we're just going to look at the first 10 verses. But Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10 this morning. The Apostle John writes, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. To blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. The title of my message this morning is The Beast Out of the Sea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together to be in this place, knowing, Lord Jesus, that you are here, that your Holy Spirit will give us understanding of your word and application from your word. And we ask for that this morning. We ask that you would change us, that you would draw us closer into our relationship with you. And Father, we pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you completely, Maybe they're not born again this morning, Lord. Would you especially touch their heart today? Thank you for our time together, Lord. Thank you for this new year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a bizarre sounding chapter. I mean, we read of a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And immediately you get the, the vision of Godzilla versus Rodan versus Mothra. There it is. I mean, if you've never read the Bible, all of a sudden you read this chapter, you go, it's Godzilla. There it is. But of course, John is using symbolism, typology, as we will see. Now, if you remember from our study back in chapter 12, we saw the origin and the future in store for Satan and his demonic powers. Well, here in chapter 13, for all practical purposes, we are introduced to the devil's secret Weapon. If Satan ever had a son, 
We are introduced to him here in chapter 13. This one that the Bible speaks of called the Antichrist. Now he goes by all sorts of different names in scripture. The crooked servant, the evil man, the little horn, the proud man, the spoiler, the destroyer, the extortioner, the vile person, or the violent man, or the wicked one, or the willful king, or the worthless shepherd, the lawless one, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the unclean spirit. I mean, any horrible terms title, that's him. I mean, here's a man so evil, so ruthless, so animalistic, that John calls him by this unflattering term, the beast. Now, why would we care about this beast coming out of the sea, this Antichrist? Why even give him, give him a passing thought? Well, maybe because there are over a hundred passages in Scripture that talk about him, that talk about the origin and his career and nationality and character and kingdom and the final doom of the Antichrist. He is discussed very, very uh, in depth in here in the book of Revelation. He's also spoken of in the book of Daniel. He's spoken of in Second Thessalonians. He's spoken of in First John. The sheer volume of information about the Antichrist in Scripture is enough for us to want to understand who he is and what he will do. But I think there's another reason we should know about the Antichrist. Because as we read of him reigning, and we see the evil in our world today, it can almost look as if things are going really badly and, and, and that, you know, he's going to continue on. And, and, and as we continue to see in Revelation, we'll see this Antichrist, he's going to be defeated. We, we're going to see that evil is going to be overcome. We will see that in the end, God wins. And since God wins, we win. So let's keep that in perspective as we come into 2021, that no matter what this new year brings, we serve the one and only powerful God of the universe who has everything under his control. Now with that, that said, let's take a few moments and look at this man described as the beast, better known as the Antichrist. If you're taking notes, we're going to see four things about him. We're going to see, number one, the weirdness of the beast. <laughs> number two, the worship of the beast. Number three, the war of the beast. And number four, the warning about the beast. First of all, the weirdness of the beast. Let's read verses 1-3 through three again. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now that just sounds plain weird. But again, John is using symbolism, typology. And as I shared last week, our job is to interpret and to understand the reality behind what these symbols represent. Now some of these symbols are pretty easy to pick up on if you're a student of the scriptures, and if you happen to be here when we did our study through the book of Daniel, many of these same symbols and concepts are first introduced to us in the book of Daniel. Specifically, chapter 7, Daniel was given a vision of four animals that are represented four kingdoms. Same animals that we just read here. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and a dragon. Same four symbols. Now, when Daniel wrote those words, this was primarily all in his future. 
But now as we look back on what Daniel wrote with 2020 hindsight, we can see how historically it was fulfilled to the T. You see, first Daniel had the vision of a lion. That was a symbol of the kingdom that he was captive in and advising the king of. That was the kingdom of Babylon. Remember the Babylonians overtook the Israelites. Israel was in bondage for 70 years. And you remember the leader of Babylon was a man named Nebuchadnezzar who was influenced by the ministry of Daniel. Well, he was ultimately replaced by Belshazzar who was the last king of Babylon. That was the lion represented by that, that animal. Archaeologists Guys that study old things, I did this last time. I'm having a hard time with that word. They've actually unearthed ruins uh, dating back to Babylon that have used that symbol of a lion with the wings on there like we just read about. Uh, so first there was a lion that is overcome by a bear. Now a bear is represented by massive strength. We know that the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon. Now this was predicted elsewhere in scripture. We all remember that story when the wicked boy King Belshazzar was reigning. He threw a a feast to all these false gods. They were drinking out of the sacred vessels used in the Jewish temple there and going out of their way to blaspheme God. And suddenly as they're having this drunken feast, a hand is seen writing on the wall. Remember, meanie, meanie, tekel euphorsin. Daniel was called in to interpret it. He said, what it meanie meanies is this. It means... You've been found, you've been weighed in the balances and found lacking. Party's over, buddy. You're busted. Your number's up. You're going down. And as that was happening, the Medo-Persians were sneaking in through the water duct, led by Darius, coming to conquer the Babylonians. Well, Darius then came into power. And if you remember, Darius was the king, the one in charge, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel survived uh, this captivity. He was still there with, with, with Darius. And he survived the lion's den. Medo-Persians were then overtaken by the Greeks of Alexander the Great. That symbolizes the leopard here. Leopards are known for their quick speed. And, and, uh, and uh, Alexander the Great led the charge, conquered much of the world very, very quickly. And then wept because there was no other world for him to conquer. Well, then as you move forward in Daniel chapter 7... Uh, of, of verse 7, it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all these beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this is a description then of the mighty, unstoppable military machine of Rome. Interestingly, looking at this final beast in Daniel's prophecy of chapter 7, no one overtakes Rome. Historically, no one conquered Rome. No one could step up militarily against Rome. Rome effectively, uh, essentially collapsed from, from its own weight and was eventually overrun. But there was no military army that was able to overtake her. And from this army, from this Roman, uh, ancient Rome, uh, the, from the ashes, the Antichrist rises. Daniel chapter 7 verse 8 says this. And as I was looking at the horns, another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were wrenched out by the roots and all to make room for it. This little horn had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. So from these other beasts, from these other nations, from this mighty military machine emerges the Antichrist. 
See, all of these symbols are drawn upon to describe the future Antichrist, showing that he will combine the distinguishing features of all these three prominent world empires of the past to make one huge, powerful empire in the future. It'll be an empire with the splendor of Babylon, the cruelty of the Medo-Persians, the speed of the Greeks, and the might of Rome. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, the Caesars, Napoleon, Hitler himself, all were forerunners of this one who is to come who will harness the economic and technical power of the world and bring about a one-world economy, a one-world government, a one-world religion. The Antichrist is going to have an alignment of ten nations that will give him the muscle and the power like you've never seen before to push his agenda. Now, of course, it's obvious in the days that we're living in that the European Union that now exists is in the embryonic stage of this revived Roman Empire. And I believe the European Union today is not the fulfillment of the resurrected empire, but the conduit. We're seeing a buildup of this final form. We know Great Britain had, has exited uh, the EU with Brexit and, and, and has significantly weakened the Union. So there may be a lot of twists and turns getting to the Empire's final form. But what I think we're seeing in the EU is a stage being set. Now, this we know for sure. There will be a revived Roman Empire. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we know God's Word says it, so it's going to happen. God says so. Now, what I think we don't often think about is the actual geographical size that ancient Rome was. It included the, all the nations surrounding the Mediterranean Sea that we don't think about, including today like, like Libya and Algeria and Morocco and Egypt. There's a map, you kind of see the dark colors there representing uh, ancient Rome. What's interesting is that Turkey was once a major part of the Roman Empire. And why that's interesting is because today in Turkey, President Erdogan is posturing to revive the glory of the former Ottoman Empire, that is the Islamic Caliphate that was dismantled in the early 20s. A caliphate, if you don't know, is, is an Islamic state under the leadership of an Islamic steward with the title of caliph, a person considered a, a political, religious successor to the Islamic prophet Muhammad and a leader of the entire Muslim world. In fact, there are those that have speculated that, that the formation of the ten-nation confederacy will actually be under the umbrella of this revived Turkish Islamic caliphate and that the Antichrist will rise up from Turkey. Now, we can't say for sure. We don't know. But what we can say is that the president of Turkey, Erdogan, has turned Turkey into a terror state. It's being driven by jihad values. And even though they claim that Turkey is a secular state, it's really not anymore. So then the question is, is Turkey going to be the base of the Antichrist Empire with a total of ten nations on board with them? Well, it certainly can lean that way. Now understand, I'm not saying that President Erdogan is the beast coming out of the sea. What I am saying, though, is looking at Turkey, it certainly could be shaping up as a precursor of things to come. Many, many years ago, the late Chuck Mister said, when it comes to end times event, keep your eye on Turkey. I mean, think about this. If you take Turkey, which is a powerful nation in and of itself, and nine other revived Roman empires or Roman nations surrounding Turkey combined all of their military power, all of their economic power into one. 
you would have a force to be reckoned with. It would rival every superpower in the world today, including the United States of America. Something to speculate about. But here's what we, we do know for sure. The beast that rises up out of the sea speaks of a new world empire that's going to be set up and it's going to be in the beginning of this great tribulation period. And the final world kingdoms that the scholars agree is we revived Roman Empire. It will consist of ten nations and that through it a world leader will rise up and gain world acceptance and dominance in a relatively short amount of time. We read about him in verse 2. It says, The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. We know who the dragon is from our study in chapter 12 last time. The red dragon is Satan. So Satan is given the power and the authority to the Antichrist. And I believe the world is looking for just such a man. Why do I say that? Well, the problem is, is there's a lot of misconceptions about the Antichrist. And we're going to look at him further next week. But he's not going to be this evil-looking guy wrapped in a black cape. Not going to be Anakin Skywalker when he turns to the dark side of the Force. Not going to be an evil-looking guy. In fact, he's probably going to be a very charismatic-looking guy, maybe pretty much like the late JFK Jr., if you remember the way he looked, you know. Good-looking guy, great sense of humor, kindness in his eyes. I'm not saying it's, it's him. He, he's passed away. But, 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 uh, but, but someone like him. In fact, listen to Chuck Swindoll describing what the Antichrist will be like. He writes this. He will have the oracle skills of a John Kennedy, the inspirational power of a Winston Churchill, the determination of a Joseph Stalin, the vision of a Karl Marx, the respectability of a Gandhi, the military prowess of a Douglas MacArthur, the charm of a Will Rogers, and the genius of a King Solomon. In addition to that, he will be empowered by Satan, and his incredible capabilities will be used against God's people. In other words, he's going to be everything to everyone. But not only that, he's going to be extremely arrogant and very confident. Why is that? Because he can actually do what he says he's going to do. He's going to get the job done. Because, again, what we read in verse 2 is that he's been given the power to do that by Satan himself. But know this. As he rises in power, he will be accomplishing only what God will allow him to do. Understand, God is allowing all of this. This is under God's command. This is all under God's order. You know, sometimes when we go through times of trouble and times of difficulty, we, we blame it all on Satan and how, well, he's tearing us apart or he's attacking us. And we think, well, God just doesn't understand. But understand, as Christians, God does understand and he does allow trials and he does allow struggles to come into our lives for our good and, and, and for us to call out to him and to grow in our relationship with them. Now, not all things that come to us are in themselves good, you know, it was not good for Joseph to be hated by his brothers, put into a pit, sold into slavery, lied about by a wicked woman, and then cast into prison. Not good at all. But Joseph maintained the right attitude towards his trials, and what men meant for evil, God used it for good. See, our attitude will either make us, or it'll, it'll break us. If we have the right attitude, and simply trust in the Lord, that no matter what comes our way, we can rest assured that whatever comes our way either comes by, by permission or direction. Either he sends it or he permits it. And whatever he sends or whatever he permits, he could prevent. But since he doesn't prevent it, then we just rest in the fact that God is working all things together for our good. 
and ultimately for his glory. Well, next we see something interesting happen to the Antichrist in verse 3. Remember, anti can also mean in place of. And what I believe we're going to see next is an imitation death and a resurrection. Look at verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So it appears there's going to be an, uh, an assassination attempt upon his life that will appear to be successful. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 17 mentions this assassination attempt. It will leave him blind in his right eye and his right arm paralyzed. But what's interesting is this word in verse 3 for mortally wounded could be translated two ways. Either wounded to death or wounded to the appearance of death. Notice verse 3 doesn't say the beast rises from the dead. Nowhere in the Bible is Satan given power over death. Instead, we read it's as if he had been mortally wounded. In other words, it looks like a miracle. But listen, it's going to do the trick. His amazing recovery is going to rocket him into superstardom. He's going to be very, very popular I mean, think about all those in the world of this time who will see this great leader, this charismatic man, people love, mortally wounded, suddenly come back to life. It'd be like if uh, John F. Kennedy, had, had, after he'd been assassinated, if he'd come walking out of the, the Parkland Hospital in Dallas, surviving the bullet that, that went through his brain. They were, oh man, this is a miracle. Imagine the assassination of this future charismatic world leader. It's going to be even more impactful. This guy's going to be so influential that people are actually going to worship him. That brings us to our next point, number two, the worship of the beast. Look at verse four and look at verse eight. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And down to verse eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose name have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So after this so-called assassination, there's going to be a widespread acceptance and allegiance and worship for the Antichrist. He's going to be on every news show. He's going to be on Conan and on Jimmy Fallon and on all the, all the other guys. He's going to be on there and, and uh, he's going to be uh, you know, the, the talk of the town. We read that they worship the dragon, that's Satan, and they worship the beast, that's the Antichrist. I mean, what has been Satan's goal all along? He wanted to be worshipped. And here he's going to get it on a widespread scale that, that he's been craving all along. Now you may say, oh, come on. People aren't going to worship Satan. Maybe we used to say that, but things have changed. We have satanic churches where people are consciously, knowingly worshipping Satan through the worship of self. Listen to this goal of the Church of Satan today. Says they call themselves the first above-ground organization in history, openly dedicated to the acceptance of man's true nature, that of a carnal beast living in a cosmos which is permeated and motivated by the dark force which we call Satan. We create our gods, not the other way around. In a very real way, we construct them and define them, and they in turn guide and define us. In other words, the worship of Satan is through the worship of self. And the fact is, people are already worshipping Satan unknowingly, very simply through the worship of self. We see it in Scientology, 
We see it in the New Age movement. It's a way of thinking. It's permeating our society. And it's very effective and very seductive. Why? Because it's all about you. It's all self-focused. What did Satan think? I will be like the Most High. I will ascend. I will be like God. What are people telling you today? Oh, you need to feel good about yourself. You're good. Believe in yourself. You will ascend. You will reach new heights. You can be as God. According to New Ageism, Jesus came to reveal the pantheistic nature of God and to teach humanity the gospel of self-realization. You can be your own God. See, that all that is paving the way for the worship of Satan and the Antichrist through the worship of self. We're seeing it in our world today. You know, in times past, me growing up and being in high school in the 70s, you know, you'd watch these B-movies, and there would be these satanic movies, and everybody, they were in these red robes, and they'd have their candles in the background, and, you know, be chanting these chants, and, and you're going, oh man, they're, they're worshiping the devil, you know. That's not the way it's going to be. All that's a deception. That's not what it's going to look like. It's going to look like this cloaked in new age enlightenment, a new consciousness, self-awareness, self-satisfaction, all about self and the new age antichrist will get many to worship him through the worship of self. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Total opposite teaching that we're seeing in the world today. So as I mentioned, if Satan ever had a, a, a man on his side, this guy is going to be empowered, energized by the devil himself. He's going to be uh, apparently mortally wounded, come back to life, and the people are going to buy into his lie with both feet in. They're going to worship him. On top of all this, in verses 5 through 7, we're going to see his true colors come out. He's going to be a very blasphemous man. This brings us to point number three, the war of the beast. Look at verses 5 through 7. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, this is the time frame that we've been looking at over the last couple of studies here in chapters 12 and chapters 13. John writes that this man will have 42 months left, or 1,260 days, or the last three and a half years of the seven-year Great Tribulation period. Chapters 12 and 13 are, are parentheses that zeroes in on events that occur that are occurring at this halfway point. See, up until this point, the Antichrist, he's been preaching peace, he's been preaching tolerance, he's solved mankind's problems, World religions are coming together. Jews and Muslims are living together in harmony. Perhaps they're even coexisting on the Temple Mount. Finally, those narrow-minded, right-wing, fundamental, intolerant, racist, Bible-thumping Christians are out of here. They've been raptured. The Antichrist can now sell his coexist theology. He'll probably explain the rapture as an evolutionary leap forward that eliminated those intolerant, racist Christians. Let me tell you, the world is poised for this new age. But at halftime, halfway during that seven-year period, the beast is going to show his fangs. He's not the peaceful ruler he claimed to be. 
He becomes the personification of evil. He murders two of God's witnesses and sets up an image of himself in the temple and requires all the world to worship him. Matthew 24 talks of that. According to Revelation 12, it's after this blasphemy that, that war erupts in heaven. We looked at this last time. He's booted out of heaven and, and in retaliation, Satan just attacks God's people, the Jews. If there's one thing we know about the Antichrist, and that he's going to be a very, very arrogant man. And when he gets out of, out of, kicked out of heaven, he's going to be a very angry man. He's going to speak blasphemous words against the tribulation saints, against those that would follow Christ against God. See, we, we see that kind of already happening in our society today. But this guy's going to come and he's going to spearhead a campaign that will make anything we've seen in our present time against God and against godly values these previous attacks look like a walk on the park compared to what he's going to do. He's just going to begin to spew out these blasphemies against Christians here, but against, not only Christians, but against God, against heaven, against all those that talk about heaven. And beyond that, it says in verse 7, that power is given him to overcome the saints. Verse 7 says, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Now this is a great verse to back up the pre-tribulation rapture. It's an interesting verse because people will read it and say, well, wait a minute. If, if he's been given power over the saints, what about the time when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it in Matthew sixteen eighteen, What do you mean the Antichrist has power over to overcome the saints? Well, understand that the word saints is different than the word church. Now, those that are part of the church are called saints, but not all saints are a part of the church. There are three different groups of people in the Bible referred to as saints. Saints simply means separated ones. Now we know the Old Testament, the, the, the word refers to Israel, Old Testament saints. The New Testament refers to the church. And after the church is raptured, it refers to the, those that get saved during the tribulation or the tribulation saints. And I believe that these saints are the ones that you've been sharing with for weeks, for months, perhaps even for years to come to Jesus sharing with them the, the love that Jesus has for them, telling them how God's got a plan for their lives and there's, there's coming a time when God will, will rapture me out of here. When you see that happen, know that I've, all that I've told you is going to be true. When the rapture takes place, man, they're going to come looking for answers. They might even come here. We can tell them to go online. If they're watching right now, the rapture's taking place. Go to calvaryspringfield.com. Look up our library sermons. Find the one explaining the rapture. You know, look up Bruce's teaching on First Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. Study Revelation. We just did study Daniel. It explains it all in detail. But you see, after the rapture of the church, they're going to get saved. And they're going to be known as the tribulation saints. Now the problem, however, of being a tribulation saint is that they will lose their life for the gospel's sake. In fact, the Bible teaches in Revelation 20 that they will actually establish a process of decapitation. As anyone who does not have the mark of the beast will lose their head. You know, I don't believe that we in America can even imagine what that will be like. I mean, we had a glimpse of it you know, a couple of years back with ISIS and the stuff they were doing, but, but hopefully we never will. But today there are fellow Christians our brothers and sisters in the Lord and other places that they, they, they know exactly what it's, what it's like. According to Open Doors Ministries, there are more than 260 million Christians around the world that are living where, where 
they're experiencing high levels of persecution just for following Jesus. That's one in eight believers are experiencing persecution worldwide. The number one spot for Christian persecution is North Korea. And it's reported there, if you're discovered as being a Christian, you are either deported immediately to a labor camp or you are shot there on the spot. Afghanistan's number two. Somalia is number three in persecution. Sudan is one of the hardest places to be a Christian. Over the years, 1.9 million believers have lost their lives. Families have been torn apart. Daughters raped at the age of 10 or married off at the same age. Horrible injustices and persecution. And that's why we as a church in America should be praying for them. And understand the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of the Christ and members individually. We are part of the, the body of Christ. And here's my point. The persecution we hear going on today in this world will be nothing compared to the persecution the Antichrist will bring against the tribulation saints and the Jews. It will be a worst time ever seen because it will be worldwide. Verse 7 says of the Antichrist, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. In other words, this beast will rule with an iron fist over every tribe, tongue, and nation. The beast, he'll rule globally. What Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, the Caesars, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin failed to accomplish a world dictatorship, this ruler achieves global domination. Listen, no matter how the problems of today are defined, increasingly the world believes that the only viable solution to all of our problems is of a global nature. Everywhere we turn, globalism is being talked about and touted as the only answer to mankind's problems. If you're a nationalist, you are on the wrong side of progress. That's the reason so many people uh, hated Donald Trump. He was all about America. You know, two signs that, that those that are prophecy buffs, the pre-trib prophecy buffs look for. Two signs at the point that we're in the last days. Number one is Israel. Keep your eyes on Israel. But number two is a global government. Israel is a super sign of the end times and when they rejoined as a nation once again in 1948, man, we kicked things into, into motion. But right now there is a push for a one world global government. A one world global currency doing away with cash. The so-called coin shortages in America. Universal global chips inserted under your skin with medical records that will prevent you or allow you to travel globally. There's a rash of current events in the news pushing for a global agenda. Maybe you heard of the Great Reset. The Great Reset is a proposed uh, proposal by the World Economic Forum to rebuild the world's economies following the COVID-19 pandemic. They're going to gather together uh, this the director of World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, uh, and they're going to gather the 20th and 21st of this month of January, and they're going to talk about it. See, it was, this was unveiled back in May of 2020 by the United Kingdom's Prince Charles, and again by this World Economic Forum guy, Klaus Schwab. Very confusing to try and figure out what this great reset is all about. But one thing is clear. It is linked specifically with taking political and economic control using the environment as a backdrop for creating a new world order, new global order. Sounds an awful lot like what the Antichrist goals are going to be as well. Again, verse 7 says, they'll seize authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
So many things are happening right now that are all pointing towards the end of the church age that we as a church need to be looking at because our redemption is drawing near. So, the war of the beast will break out against these tribulation saints all over the world. Again, verse 8, all who dwell in the earth will worship him. That's the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's interesting that word dwell in verse 8 means to be at home with. And the word earth here refers to the world system. So we see that there are those that are going to be very comfortable at home with that worldly scene going on. And as a result, they'll be worshiping the Antichrist. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It should be a warning to all of us coming into this new year to check ourselves to see how comfortable we are in this worldly scene especially as we see these days unfolding. This brings us to our final point, the warning about the beast. Number four, look at verses 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What is John saying here? He is saying the one who is presently the cause of all of our tribulation, all of our difficulties, the one who has been throwing attack after attack against you ever since you gave your life to Jesus Christ, he's going to be going down. He's going to go down big time. He says Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, we'll read about next week, they're all going down, they're going to get theirs. Listen, we need to remember that God is a just God and justice will be served. No matter how much injustice you're seeing in this world presently, God will bring justice. Now those that have wronged us, you know, we say, all right, God, you go get them. Justice, yeah. Now if we wrong someone else, you know, it's like, oh, mercy, God, please, grace, grace, please, please, God. My point is we need to remember to show God's grace. But there are times when we say, Lord, when? When are you going to execute justice? This is so wrong what's going on. Understand he will. Because he said in his word that justice will come. Listen, God has not failed on one single prophecy and he's not going to start now. That's why he says in verse 10, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Do you realize how blessed we are this morning, folks? Because we know the end of the story. Listen, you may... Be in a difficult marriage. You might be being persecuted on the job. You might be fighting an illness or undergoing severe pressures financially. You might just be plain weary in your flesh, which rears its ugly head constantly. But here's the one thing that we know. One day, it'll all be solved. It'll all be over. Revelation 21, 4 and 5 says this, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That's what John is telling the people that are reading this book. That's what God's Spirit is telling us this morning. I mean, here's the exciting thing. If you miss everything else this morning, don't miss this. The forces that are against us are soon going to be done away with. The beasts, the persecution, the problems, they're all going to be gone very, very soon. Thus the reason the Lord has laid upon my heart our verse for the year, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting, 
at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. That's why we need to read Revelation over and over again. Because it's not about the mark of the beast or figuring out who the false prophet is or the Antichrist is. A real reason for reading the book of Revelation is because it gives us hope. It gives us hope. It reveals us who Jesus is and that gives us hope. As well as to bring us back to constantly the fact that life is short and we're going to be in heaven soon. So set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. Maybe lately you've been setting your minds on the things of the earth and not on the things above. Maybe you've become comfortable with the things of this world. Let 2021 be a restart for us. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things in the earth. Remember, life is short. The Lord is in control, is in control and we're going to heaven. Again, that's what the book of Revelation is about. To give us hope. But not only should we have hope, but this hope should bring conviction. Now, we as a church... Uh, we should be a people of conviction. We should be those that care about what's happening to mankind. I think we could talk about uh, the end of the world. We could talk about God's judgment. But these, you know, a truly righteous person, a person of conviction that loves the Lord, will be horrified because we know that millions of people are going to suffer and die without Christ. I think seeing the things transpiring in our society today should be a wake-up call to all of us. We need to be aware of what's going on and not lulled into the idea that everything is just going to keep going as it always has. Things are getting worse. And we need to be standing upon the Word of God and not pulling back but pressing forward to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. To be men and women who have made God's Word a priority. Renew your commitment to read and study God's Word for 2021. To apply God's truth to your life, uh, to your daily life. To be men and women of prayer. Men and women that are taking every opportunity to share our faith. And finally, our prayer should be to remain faithful, willing to stand strong. And by the grace of God, we shall stand no matter what. Finally, as we closing and ready to enter into time of communion, we read in verse 8 that the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The book of life contains all the names of those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, including those that come to faith during the Great Tribulation. This book belongs to the Lamb slain before, from before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ. I think too many people have a far too small view of what Christ did in dying for the sins of humanity. I know I did. Growing up, I was aware that Jesus died on the cross and paid the price for my sin. While that is true, that's not the full picture. See, you see, the Old Testament makes it unmistakably clear that the fact that every sin needed to be dealt with individually. That's why Old Testament believers were required to lay their hands on the animals that they sacrificed and confess their sin sacrificially. Yes, there was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement for the nation, but every individual was still required by law to make sacrifice for his personal transgressions, his personal trespasses, his personal sins. Now, if you multiply all of our sins of those in this room this morning and add all the sins of the people in this country, then in our world, and then add all the folks who have lived throughout history from Genesis until today, the amount of sin staggers our imagination. That's why I believe that when the word speaks of Christ being slain before the foundation of the world, 
It's only when we get to heaven that we will really understand that he was slaughtered and slain in a way that we could not understand this side of heaven. And when we see him, when we see him, I believe we will worship him with an intensity and explosion of praise never before experienced because we will last see him as a lame lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And we will say, I had no idea what my sin cost him. See, as we enter into communion, it's a time that we as Christians can draw close to our God, remembering the awesome sacrifice that was made for us upon the cross. But it's also a time for us to, to search our hearts. Say, Lord, as we go into 2021, have I become comfortable in this world? Have I let the things of this world overpower my life, or have I put you first and foremost in my life? One final thing. If you're here this morning, Revelation chapter 20, verse 17, it says this, another warning, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, then your name is not written in the book of life. You say, well, how do I get my name written in the book of life? I need to do that now. You do need to do it now. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's all it takes. There's no magic formula. There's no secret handshake. There's no initiation. You just give your life to Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I, I, I surrender my heart and life to you. Forgive me. Fill me with your spirit. And he will come in and he'll write your name in that book of life. So as we enter a time of communion, make sure you've made that commitment to the Lord. And for those of us that have, take this time to, as the Bible says, lay every sin and every weight aside. And let's walk with endurance a race that is set before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning now that we can enter into communion. Lord, remembering the, the awesome sacrifice that was paid for us upon that cross. And not just us in this room, Lord. The people all over the world. From the beginning of time, Lord, from Genesis all the way to now. Jesus, you paid for every sin. And the sad thing is, Jesus, not everyone will accept that forgiveness. Not everyone will come to you and confess their sins. We know your word says if we confess our sins, you are faithful, you are just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to confess that we're sinners, that we've fallen short, that we can't make it to heaven on our own. we're, We're lost without you. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to confess their sin to you and turn from their sin and commit their life to you, they would do so now. Lord, we recognize even as believers we can get dirty from the world. We can put weights on us and sin upon us that we need to confess, that we need to lay aside, cast aside. So, Lord, I pray as we examine our hearts this morning that if there's anything that would hinder the work that you want to do in our lives for 2021, the time that we have left, Lord, that we would recognize it, cast it aside, and make a renewed commitment to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.